This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. That's Ryan, that's Derek, that's Eric. Guys, we went over 1 Timothy 1 last week. Now we're getting into 1 Timothy 2, and I told you guys that we were going to leave a little meat on the bone last week because we're probably going to go maybe a little bit long this week, or we'll kind of see how it goes with everything. But to take... The ending of First Timothy, specifically in verse 18, where it talked about wage the good warfare, according to the ESV. Some versions might say, some translations might say fighting the good fight or something like that. And take that into the very, very beginning of the second chapter. So I'm going to read the first couple of verses here for First Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way. So that's what I want to get into. And I teased this a little bit last week, but one of the commentaries I have is from an absolute giant of the faith and that's uh, John MacArthur. And he has been, you know, gosh, he's been a pastor for 60 years or something like that. So I read this, this part right here because that immediately caught my eye. You know, when you say lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, what does that mean? And so I'm going to his commentary here. And this is when he's talking about the part, a quiet and peaceable life. Quiet refers to the absence of external disturbances. Peaceable refers to the absence of internal ones. While it remains uncompromising in its commitment to the truth, the church is not to agitate or disrupt the national life. When it manifests love and goodness to all and prays passionately for the lost, including rulers, the church may experience a certain amount of religious freedom. Persecution should only be the result of a, of righteous living, not civil disobedience. Now, this commentary was written, I'm not sure, but it wasn't written here in the last few years. It wasn't written in the era of the C word where a lot of people are trying to reject getting the jab. I'm actually trying to figure out whenever uh, this was published. So this was copyrighted uh, 2005. So this is, you know, close to 20 years ago. So I vehemently disagree with this view, at least in how it was expressed in these few sentences here, because some people will take this. And some people have taken this. We talked about Andy Stanley last week. He has certainly taken this. And a lot of people in the, the Trump era and the post-Trump era have taken this to mean, and, the, and the, the C-word era and all those different things to be like, look, Christians aren't supposed to be disputatious. Uh, we're, we're supposed to lead this, this quiet life. We're supposed to be peaceful and dignified. And what that means is if the government says, your church is not essential, we say, okay, because we're supposed to respect our magistrates. They're going to tell us, hey, um, you, you, don't all, uh, you can't have your Christian convictions as a part of your business. You have to bake this cake for this gay wedding. Or, hey, yeah, you know, I understand that you don't think we should bring in a, a drag queen to, talk, uh, to read a story to the kids at your school, but that's just kind of what's going to happen. And don't bring your morality into here. Like, I don't subscribe to that morality, any of those types of things. I think this expands out into a lot of different areas. But I think, especially with what Undaunted Life is here for, equipping men to be able to push back darkness, 
you could read this scripture and be like, well, I guess we're just supposed to be pacifists on everything. I guess on every important issue, we are literally just supposed to take it, you know, bend over, grab our, grab our ankles and take it no matter what comes at us, because we're supposed to be peaceful. We're supposed to be dignified in every way. And I reject that entirely. And I'm going to go back to John MacArthur's words here, where he talks about while in, while it remains uncompromising in its commitment to truth, the church is not to agitate or disrupt the natural life. So if someone says that whenever you end a pregnancy, that that's all you're doing. No, I'm sorry. If we're going to be committed to truth, we have to push back against that darkness directly and to agitate as we do that. Now, we're supposed to do that and correct people in love and all that's fine and well, but we don't get anywhere by saying, you know what, to each their own. Yeah, it may be life. It may not be life. So when, whenever people are talking about doing this peacefully, no, I'm, I, I would not saying that we should go and, and kill people that are killing babies. I'm not saying anything like that. But this idea that we're just supposed to sit back and allow all these dark, depraved and sinful things to happen right under our noses. And the church is not going to prophesy into the community and say, no, we're not going to do that. And this is why I think it is absolutely reprehensible. And people are buying it like an Andy Stanley, like any of these other people. They're buying it hook, line and sinker. And they're basing their brand new theology around. I don't think John MacArthur is buying it that way, though. He may have wrote those words, but he did not take the well. His actions, his actions with Governor Newsom, clearly point against that, right? Yeah, and he's very outspoken in regards to sanctity of life and everything. I think what it really comes down to is it comes down like let's talk about the jab. You know what I'm saying? Like if I have a church and I've got some people that want to get the jab, and I have some people that don't want to get the jab, I'm not going to sit there and say all you people who don't get the jab. Are, are bad people or all you people who get the jab, you're just, you're just, what do you want to call sheep? You know what I'm saying? Like that's where your Christian freedom lies. You want to go get the jab, go get the jab. I'm going to love you as a Christian, no matter what, you know what I'm saying? But you have these pastors out there that want to make you feel bad. Like you don't care about life because you didn't go get the COVID shot. You know what I'm saying? And that's the thing is I think that's what he's talking about in regards to certain parts of life. Like if it goes against the Bible, He's going to go against that. But nothing about getting the jab or not getting the jab is biblical. You know what I'm saying? But abortion is biblical. Telling people they can't go to church on Sunday, that's biblical. You know what I'm saying? But things that are unbiblical, that's where you have you know, things that are, aren't built into the Bible, not unbiblical, but things that aren't built into the Bible like the jab, that's up to Christian freedom. You, you can get the flu shot. You can not get the flu shot. You know, you can vaccinate your kids or not vaccinate your kids. It's up to you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't. Gosh, I don't know if I even read it like that. Um, I mean, I was just reading this as I should pray for my leaders. Yeah, that's you know? how I read it. <laughs> and, and like, and honestly, Republicans should be praying for Democrats. Yeah. Democrats for Republicans. And obviously, probably not doing that. But um, the, the idea being that we're praying for their salvation. We're praying for wisdom to come to them, that they would make decisions that are based on the capital T truth. You know, um, that, that's kind of what I, what I got it. So, I, you know, I was just thinking like, do I pray for my enemies or my perceived enemies. You know, it's certainly that's hard, harder to do, but, um, but God loves them all, you know, so go ahead. Yeah, Kyle, I'm kind of with you, except I'm split because I, I think I disagree with the first part of John MacArthur's commentary there, but I agree with the second part that if we're going to be persecuted, it should be for righteous living, not civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think to me, that's the, that's the difference because the second part of that is, uh, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all what? In all godliness and reverence. And I think reverence includes, like you're talking about, the, uh, the reverence and the value of unborn life. Um, yeah. I think godliness and reverence uh, applies to the continual worship of him. 
um, in the spot in the face of because if you look at it, I mean, think of think of Hebrews and Hebrews counts Daniel as a man of faith and Daniel when he was under Nebuchadnezzar when he was under uh, Darius um, and he was under a third king. I can't remember who it is right now, but but when they all made edicts saying that he couldn't worship his God, what did he do? Worship he worshipped his God, his God right? I mean, so he, I, I think that's the point. Of what I'm saying is something has to win out. So if righteous living and civil disobedience are happening at the same time, which one wins out? Because like you could be living righteously, which is going directly against the civil authorities and magistrates. So are we supposed to just abide now, by what the magistrates are saying? Or are we supposed to live righteously? He, he was see, doing that on his own. Though, but he right? was doing it on his own. And I see, I, I interpret civil disobedience as hey, I'm going to be the one grabbing the picket, uh, rallying the troops and go standing out on the, uh, and throwing the, throwing a riot or throwing bricks through windows. Cause I'm mad because they said my church couldn't worship on a Sunday because we're a non-essential business. Um, I think in this situation, I think Daniel had the exact replica of righteous living and it was civil disobedience, but it was not public civil disobedience. It was like a righteous living because this is what's right. Well, I think that's too extreme of an example because James Coates in Canada, he wasn't arrested for throwing, you know, bricks through uh, the legislators windows. He was arrested for holding church in, in, in Canada. And so in that point, that's the exact point that I'm making is like, that was a civil disobedience to an atheistic, amoral government that said, you can't gather, and if you do so, we will arrest you. And they did. The man went to jail, and now he was eventually released. But it's like, like that's what I'm talking about. And so like that, if that's not persecution, I'm not exactly sure what is persecution whenever you're being arrested by an authoritarian, totalitarian, top-down government that has a, you know, a boy model as the, the prime minister. But at the same time, it's like, Somebody, a lot of people thought James Coates was acting unbiblically and sinfully in that moment because he was going against the dictates of the civil magistrates. Okay, I disagree with that. I think he was good. Well, I think, you know, civil disobedience is, I mean, what law are we, what law are we disobeying? You know what I'm saying? Like Daniel disobeyed the law. You know what I'm saying? Like whether he did it publicly or privately, he disobeyed it. And so there's laws that we're going to have to disobey, you know? And I think MacArthur did the right thing. James Coates did the right thing. They held church. They didn't force. They didn't say, hey, you're going to be a part of this congregation. You're going to show up every Sunday. Right. They had it open for people who wanted to come and worship. They weren't pushing it down anybody's throats, you know, and they allowed, they, they worshiped God. You know what I'm saying? And they should be allowed to do that. That's our God given right, no matter where we're at, you know, and luckily nobody was persecuted with death like in other countries, but. I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, I mean they went along living peacefully. The only people that were unpeaceful about it were the people arresting them and shouting them down. Yeah, and I I would agree. I think we both agree then that you know, Daniel was doing that privately. He was just doing and he was being disobedient at the same time. Same thing with this this church deal. I mean that it was they weren't going to the government. They were just continuing to practice what they mm-hmm. what they practice. And, uh, you know, I was reminded of a verse, um, in first Thessalonians somewhere is, you know, it's, um, I, I can't remember exactly, but it was just basically like, um, you can, you can be persecuted for, or persecuted is not the word you can, you can, uh, be judged and, and put down for being stupid, you know? Um, and, 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 you know, so don't do that, but, but you're also like, you could be persecuted for living a righteous life, but it's much better to live a righteous life. And to be persecuted than just to be stupid and get in trouble. Well, I think what this leads to as well, and people say this and they think it sounds so smart 
and so godly and so awesome and beautiful. And, and people have said this that I've interviewed on the show and just people in my normal life. You know what? I'm going to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against. And it sounds really good. Like put that on a sign, put that on a t-shirt. Yeah, that gives you really, really warm fuzzies and all that. But it's like, can we go one layer deeper than that silly vapid statement that literally is, doesn't have any connection to reality? Because when you look at Jesus and we've talked about lamb and lion, we've talked about, you know, grace and truth. We talked about all those different things. When Jesus approached people and confronted them about, well, I mean, the answer is in the setup. He approached them about their sin and then he absolved them of it. And then he saved them from the eternal punishment of that sin. But he never went up to people and just said, you're forgiven. And that was it. Like he pointed out their sin. He would say like, you know, go and do this no longer, right, like right. those types of things. And so when people say that, what they mean is, is in, in, you know, Andy Stanley talked about this last year in a sermon series. And again, I think Trump really broke a lot of these people's brains. Like if, you know, if you, if you break from Trump and you know, you, you kind of like get into a lot of the civil side of things, but it's like, you know, when you ask one of these big church pastors, like, hey, why didn't you talk about Black Lives Matter whenever they were doing $2 billion worth of damage uh, after George Floyd by, died in police custody? Why didn't you talk about race? Why aren't you talking about LGBTQ issues? Why aren't you talking about the fact like you were so angry about the Supreme Court doing this thing, but you're not angry about, you know, the, the Supreme Court doing that thing. You're so angry that evangelicals would support Trump, but then you don't say a word about the, the senatorial, uh, the Senate of Republicans that basically voted to enshrine uh, marriage, gay marriage, and all these different things uh, inside federal law. But when you say things like being known for what I'm for and not what I'm against, you're using that as an excuse to not talk about real issues. And that's one of my biggest problems with these cowardly pastors is they don't want to talk about the real issues and they're hiding behind is we want to be loving. We don't even want to feel judged. And so they bring in an assassin like me here. I'll come in and talk for 90 minutes about abortion because you don't have the stones to do it because you can't find in your years and years of wisdom, how you can talk about that issue and not make people feel completely condemned, but also to point out the actual capital T truth of the situation. And so I, I feel like, I don't know if this is a movement of society or if this is a movement just in church, or if it's just overall cowardice within the capital C church that people don't want to talk about these main issues and they're using statements like this as an out. Why do you think that is not pragmatic? It well, it's certainly not in. secret sensitive. We talked yeah, about that right? quite a bit. It like, doesn't bring people in. Yeah. You're not, if you and talk it doesn't about, keep people around. Yeah. If you talk about spiritual warfare every week yeah. and tithing on in the odd numbered weeks, like that's going to be a major problem for you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Bonhoeffer, he, he kind of bucked the system back in the day. He, did. Did. Yeah. he tried to kill somebody. Yeah, he sure did. <laughs> yeah. Which mm. I, I wish I mean, he would have succeeded. But I mean, what more were those pastors doing? They were just kind of falling into line, yeah. right? And eventually, uh, what did Hitler, Hitler started just taking pieces of the Bible out. And changing them. Yeah. yeah, completely yeah. changing them. They're like, oh, yeah. okay. All right. Well, and, and Eric Metaxas, in a letter to the American church, which he released in uh, 2022, he talked a lot about that, that there, there was an actual number, so I don't want to specifically say the number, but there was a relatively small percentage of German pastors that if they had fought back against some of the early dictates of the Nazi party, there is no Holocaust. There is no World War II. And it was because of these like needle dicked pe preachers and pastors that they just couldn't possibly bring themselves to push back when they needed to push back. And maybe it was societal pressure. Maybe they were afraid of, of what people would think about them. Maybe they were afraid to lose their top knot, but at the end of the day, well, go ahead, Eric. Yeah, that's exactly what it was is they were afraid. Cause I remember, um, it was Eric on your show talked about it. And I remember reading in, in, um, Eric's biography of Bonhoeffer about yeah. how, um, when these German church pastors, um, it, cause they split, they actually split between right. the confessing church 
and the German church and right. the German yeah, church yeah. pastors, if they said something that went against Hitler, they would lose their license and they would lose their church. Yeah. And so they just and their livelihood and their livelihood. Yeah. yeah exactly. And so they would just acquiesce one step and then another step and then another step until they were completely backed into a corner that they were supporting something that was absolutely false. When if they would have supported it early on, none of this would have happened throughout Germany. And I do feel like it was on Eric's um, interview on your show that um, he said the same thing. If pastors will address political issues in culture, then we will not acquiesce and lose, lose steps to what culture is taking out of our church. Yeah, and, and, and the point is we, you know, I mean, yes, you can do it individually. And, it, and certain individuals can have bigger influence, but it, it, but it, we're, it, it should be a unified effort. Right. Right. Um, and that, I think that's where we fall short is you have a lot of guys working on islands, you know, here and there, uh, or just not at all. Well, and let's say, and let's say the we, because we've talked a lot about pastors and leaders and mm-hmm. teachers. Uh, where does the we really start? Me. It, it starts with me, you, right? Yeah. It starts you with me. Your house. Like me and my house and my family, we're going to talk about things. We're going to mm-hmm. look at God's word for things. We're going to live out things and we're going to make choices. Um, uh, so that's uh, uh, professionally, vocationally, that's all I do is help families understand and determine who their, what their family values are. Hey, this is who our family is. This is what we stand for. And therefore, this is what we do. This is what we don't do. And you know what that does, Derek? And I've talked about this a lot on the show and a lot of people taking this advice to heart. And I think it's had some, some major impacts for churches, but it's usually abortion issue. Cause that's usually the most hot button of the issues. And let's say your pastor is not talking about the abortion issue nearly enough. And I encourage men to set up a meeting with your pastor. Yep. You go in to that meeting and you tell your pastor, Hey, uh, if you start talking about some of these hot button issues and you use the Bible to, to lead us in a moral and righteous way, I know a lot of slings and arrows are going to come your way and I'm going to take some of those for you. So I'm going to stand behind you. I'm going to support you and I'm going to take some of that heat off you. And then you get 10 more guys like you to set up meetings all in succession and you all go in there and you tell them the same thing because you're going to steal his nerves. You're going to give him the courage that maybe he doesn't have in and of himself. And then what that does, but where does that start? That starts with you individually and it starts with your household and then you carry it into your ecclesia, you carry it into your church community because again, look at just yeah, people love to look at the, the finality of, of major elections, right? Whether it's for president or Senate or House of Representatives or something like that. But when you have races being decided by less than 10,000 votes and you break that down to the number of households across the nation, right? That, that's not that many households or across a state or something like that. That's not that many people. That's not that many people that are using the Bible to guide their own lives. And then they're guiding their own families and their wives vote the same way that they do, which I know is like super patriarchal to say, but those are the things is like, think about how much different the world would be. Yep. Those pastors not stepping up in Germany in the 1930s changed the trajectory of the planet of billions of people's lives. And, but at the time it probably didn't seem that grandiose. It didn't seem like that big a deal. Hey, you know, that's not really a hill worth dying on. And I tell people all the time, like a lot of conservatives, a lot of Christians, a lot of nice people are going to wake up one day and the war will have passed them by. And they never once got into the battle. They didn't pick up their helmet. They didn't put on their shield. They didn't grab their sword because there was never a hill worth dying on. It wasn't the transing of the kids. It wasn't murdering kids in the womb. It wasn't any of those things. And then one day they're going to wake up and they're going to wag their finger at the culture. It's like, I'm sorry, you weren't speaking into the culture. Mm -hmm. So I can't hear you right now. Well, here's the thing you have to look at, though, too, is if I'm a pastor and I'm preaching, it's usually expository type preaching. I'm going from verse to verse to verse in some chapter in the chapter of or in the book of the Bible. Yeah. You know, so like I don't expect our pastor 
to have like a whole sermon on why abortion is wrong. You know what I'm saying? Why not? Because, because the point of Sunday is to discuss God in the gospel. And, and so, to equip the saints. And to equip the saints, but equip the saints in the gospel. Now, if we, we come to something in the gospel like we did in, uh, we were going over the Ten Commandments and we talked about murder, mm. our pastor definitely brought up abortion as murder. For five minutes. And sin. But he still brought it up. I mean, that's speaking truth into that. I don't expect him to do a 45-minute sermon on why abortion is sin. Like, I totally vehemently disagree with abortion and think that it's wrong. But the purpose of Sunday is not to glory to is to glorify God. You know what I'm saying? And so if we're discussing that in a certain chapter of the book, then let's discuss it. You know, maybe he could go longer than five minutes. I'm fine with that, but I don't expect a whole sermon on, on why not abortion or why abortion's wrong or, or LGBTQ well, or anything. Like so that. I agree that you, you can't be a pastor that preaches the news cycle. Like I don't want to yeah. hear what the pastor has yeah. to say about any of the well, headlines I went to a church. last week. Where the pastor preached the news cycle. That's what they did? Yeah. Yeah, and so, like, that, again, I've used the word vapid already. So, but, like, it's very vapid and very, like, there's not a whole lot of foundation to that. The problem is, is church is about glorifying God. It's also the equipping of the saints. It's also a means of discipleship. And so part of the reason why I'm so, you know, vehement and, and loud about the, the abortion issue is because I can walk into just about every church in America and stand a random congregant up and I can destroy their pro-life worldview by asking a single question. What if she's raped? Yeah, what if she's it. raped by her ankle? And all of a sudden it's like, well, I guess we can kill that kid. It's like, well, gosh darn it. I guess that five minutes every five years that you spend on the abortion issue doesn't exactly have the impact that you thought it did. No, and, and, and I agree with you. I mean, we had that conversation. You changed yeah. my mind on that. Um, that's what I think, that's what our adult Bible study fellowships are for. You know what I'm saying? That's where we can dig into the word and we can be discipled by the people in our church who are leaders within our church. You know, Sunday morning, that an hour and 15 minutes is for worship and it's to learn from the Bible. And if we want to dig deeper on certain subjects in regards to our culture and the Bible, I think ABF is a perfect, our adult Bible fellowship is a perfect place. That's for that. what our church calls Sunday school. Yeah, by sorry. The way. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I think that's, that's where it comes in. You know, like I feel like that's where we can get that. I, I see, I see Derek. Yeah. So to your point is, I think it is a little assumptive to think that pastors on Sunday morning are teaching a book of the Bible and going through verse by verse. I think it's a little assumptive because I think it is less the norm than it is the norm. Oh no, you're a hundred percent. So I think one, if you, this goes to anybody, any of the people listening is if you have a pastor that perhaps is preaching the new cycle or isn't, is preaching topically or providing maybe something that's a little bit shallow of a message. Ryan, you talked about earlier, Hey, um, Judging truth kind of puts the onus on us that we have to pick up the Bible and read God's word to understand what truth is, to understand and to know enough to test it back against God's truth. And I think this topic goes in the same vein, in the sense of, hey, if you have a pastor or a leader of your church and you still feel called to be at that church, that it's important that you pick up the onus responsibility and you lead it out in Sunday school. You lead it out in conversations. Kyle, I love your point to say, no, you set a meeting with your pastor and you say, I would love to see these points and I'm willing to stand with you. And so uh, I want to encourage anybody listening that, hey, if there is a, a, a part, uh, a topic, something that you feel like you need to stand for because God's word stands for it and it's not happening inside your church or your community, you are fully capable and charged to go do that. I agree. Yeah. And how, how far do you think um, it should go? I mean, should your pastor also then say, hey, I'm voting for 
these people and therefore I think you should too. I mean, what, where is there a, is there a line? Well, so what's funny about that is with the last election cycle that we saw last November, um, there were, cause there, there are tax codes where basically if you use your pulpit as a, as a political entity, you could lose your tax exempt status, but it, every leftist pastor on the planet that brings in a democratic politician to speak from their pulpit, I think is violating mm-hmm. that. So I'm yeah. pretty sure it's not going to be an issue for a lot of people losing their tax exempt status moving forward. But I remember, uh, even at my church, uh, before the election last November, uh, I remember him saying, and I'll, I, I'll probably remember this forever. He said, you know, uh, you know, everyone should go out and vote, you know, people, men sacrifice their lives so that you could, you could go out and vote, make sure you practice that and also vote biblical values. Mm-hmm. And then he went into his expository, you know, sermon and it, it was great. And you got to learn and dig into the scripture. And I know what he meant, but I also know how people heard it. And there are a lot of people that are doing things that are supposedly loving, supposedly biblical but they aren't people of the book. They don't actually read the Bible. And so what they think they're doing is they're voting in a compassionate way for that poor woman that just can't raise that fourth kid. She's got to have this abortion or, you know, her life might be over. Her mental health might, might become a major issue. And so they're voting in a way that is abiblical because the pastor didn't go that very next step to say, by the way, it's unfortunate that we live in this dichotomous side of politics, but one party's platform is abortion up until the moment of birth for any reason at any time paid for by taxpayer dollars. I don't think you should vote for a single candidate that agrees with that because there's nothing more fundamental fundamental than the Imago Dei, than the image of God and image bearers. Do whatever you want to do on immigration. Talk about tax code. Talk about Ukraine. I don't care. But on this particular issue, I think it would be sinful for you to vote for somebody that is going to empower people to murder my children. But what if they're pro public education? <laughs> well, I mean, I would say. Uh, I mean, that was that was during that cycle about last November. It was all about education. You know, it's like forget about abortion. Like let's let's fund public education. I mean, I see pastors all over that. You know what I'm saying? Well, but Eric, to your point though, it, with that last uh, cycle, if you looked at Democratic spending, which is the the party of abortion, the party of baby, uh, the party of baby baby murder, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars just during the midterms for ads about the abortion issue. Most of it was misinformation, convincing women that if they had a miscarriage, they were going to be arrested, or if they had an ectopic tubal pregnancy, that they weren't going to be able to get treatment. All these lies that people just bought because they're morons. But Mm -hmm. like these these exact things, they didn't spend money on convincing people about why we should be supporting Ukraine or or why we should, you know, allow for the transing of the children. They didn't spend money on those issues. They spent it on that issue. And so when we get into all these other ancillary things, like it's cute and all, but that's where I think our pastors should absolutely, not necessarily say, here's my ballot. I'm going to put it up on the right. screen and this right. is how right. I think right. everyone should vote. But it's like, you, you can't vote for these people and expect to be standing up for the truth of the gospel. You can't. I agree with you because if you look back at some of the headlines in November on stuff where it talked about, you know, people, you know, one of the things that people were voting on in the polls was that the country's moving in the wrong direction. Right. And the wrong direction that the country thinks that we're moving in to is that and abortion. That's where they think the wrong right. direction. They think we're backwards. Right. They think we're backwards right. because of that. And I and I agree. I mean, I think it's something that we we definitely need to discuss. I think our church, I honestly think our church did the right thing by having you got, you come up and speak, and take a Wednesday night and have that have you there to discuss that argument. I I I would prefer that as a person, you know, as a as a church person on on a Wednesday or a different day. But Sunday is used for preaching. You know, and if if the if in the word it comes up to abortion or to 
LGBTQ or whatever it is in within that within what he's preaching on, then yes, I would be surprised if he doesn't bring it up and he should bring it up, you know, but if he does, if he doesn't, that's, that's a red flag, but I don't think it's like, Hey, this is what's going on before election day. Let's have a, let's have a discussion on abortion for 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes. Well, I, I, I certainly don't want to be able to, you know, I don't want to walk up to a pastor or to my pastor and, and then ask him those questions and get some beige answer. Right. Like I, he, I expect him to have a, a formulated opinion based on the word of God and the doctrine, you know, they're in. So when I, I guess the thing is, is like, you're the type of guy that would totally walk up to, to our pastor. We go to the same church for anybody listening to this to go up to our pastor. And I think we have well, 1500, 2000 members, something like that that go to our church. I think every service has like a thousand people, maybe it's a thousand. We'll just say it's a thousand people. So maybe there's six Eric Brownings that are willing to go up to our pastor or even send our pastor an email and say, Hey, I'm, I'm actually like, I feel like I'm having my own garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane moment trying to figure out who to vote for here. Like, can you please help me? And they would be able to give them help. But then 99% of the rest of the congregation is just going to do that based on their own guidance. And to allow the, because the culture will tell you exactly who you should right, vote for. Right. Like, there's no shortage of people oh, yeah. that are willing to spend money to tell you who to vote for. But as a pastor to be like, ah, that's not really my place. Like, hell, it's not your place. Like, what is your place if not to lead your flock? Because you're going to, I'm not going to have to give an account someday right. for how I led the flock, because that's not my job. You're going to. And if you live in a community and you refuse to speak into that issue and you voted for particular things and that led to the slaughter of tens of thousands of people just in your community, Sorry, but you're probably gonna have to give an answer for that. You better have a really good argument for why you didn't feel like it was your place. I don't. I don't disagree. Uh, yeah, I 100 percent agree with you, Kyle. Well, I know, I know we're uh, you know there's there's a whole lot more that can be said on that, but believe it or not, that's not even the most controversial part of <laughs> yeah. First Timothy. <laughs> good. All right, uh, let's yeah, keep it so going. <laughs> First Timothy two. I, I need to just go ahead and read the section because, like I said from the very beginning, this is one of the shorter chapters. Uh, you know, in terms of all of Paul's letters that were broken down, but my goodness, is this a lightning rod for a lot of people? Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and read verses eight through fifteen because we're going to spend a lot of time breaking down each one of them, and I'm reading from the ESV. I desire then that in every place that the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet for Adam was formed first. Then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So a couple of interesting things before we start breaking this down, because man, we could spend all kinds of time just breaking this down verse by verse. So in this section, eight through 15, verse eight is for men. Verse nine through 15 is for the women. Okay. But the lessons are for all of us. Okay. So if you're a man, that doesn't mean you turn your brain off in nine through 15. And if you're a woman, that doesn't mean you, you ignore verse eight. Okay. So again, verse eight, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I'm pretty sure that's about as straightforward as it gets. Okay. I don't know that there's a whole lot that needs to be added there. Whenever I tease this up any further, if you want to add something, feel free, go for it. But when we get into verse nine and 10, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness and good works. So I want to start there. So a bugaboo for me, for a guy that didn't grow up in church. And when I started going to church, it was first, first Baptist West in Lawton, Oklahoma, pretty conservative, 
uh, a pretty old church in terms of, of its age, wasn't much of an issue. It wasn't until I started going to church in Edmond, and the first church I went to up here was Life Church. I was astonished at some of the things that the women were wearing, uh, not just the, the cut, but the, it, it was just loud. It was obnoxious. So it was, it was somewhere between so unbelievably flashy to be distracting or so unbelievably revealing to be distracting. And again, some people really like to focus in on the braided hair thing, gold and pearls. It's like, well, I saw your wife with, uh, with ponytail and, and it was braided. Like, no, no, that, that's not the point. It was people at this time that were dressing in a way that was distracting the rest of the congregants. Um, but it was basically telling people that they should be modest and women shouldn't dress in a way that will tempt a man. And I've even, you know, done this before. And, and I know some men that have done this. So, so I, I really mean this in all humility, but I know there are women out there that are very attracted to things with their eyes. And so I, I try to not dress in a way that is, that is, you know, when I'm speaking, I don't want my dress to be distracting. That's where I wear all black. Like, and it's, you know, not ill-fitting, but it's not the tightest it can be because I don't want anyone to be getting distracted by my t-shirt or my jeans or, you know, anything like that. I want people to not be distracted at all. But even in our church, even in our Sunday school class, I see women walk in wearing stuff where I can see more of their cleavage than I can't that I can see more of, like, I don't have to leave a lot to the imagination when it comes to what's up the rest of their legs. Um, uh, the amount of plastic at our church that's inside of women and not being worn on the outside in terms of jewelry, it's astonishing to me. And there, that brings up a lot of things about modesty, about what are the men in these women's life doing? Are they encouraging these women to go and do these things? Why are these women so self-conscious that they have to get augmentations to different parts of their body in order to feel a certain way? Especially if these are supposed to be people of the book, they can't find their satisfaction in Christ. They find it in Botox injections and lip injections and fake titties. It's just like, these are the things, sorry, was that a little much? Sorry, Derek. But, <laughs> but that's the thing is for me, like, I don't know why this is such a, well, I do know why this is such a bugaboo because it's really, really hard for me to not look. So voyeurism, not like voyeurism, like peeking in people's windows and looking in their panty drawers, but that's never been a problem. But like bouncing my eyes and not being distracted by the menu of other female options that are out there, that is always going to be a struggle for me. I have to be very, very conscious about walking into a, a room or an establishment where there's going to be a lot of things available to me in terms uh, to look at. And so, uh, you know, I'll let you guys hop in here before I get myself in any more trouble, but man, you know, there's a whole lot more to cover here, but the, the modesty of women, especially in the church, gosh, it's such a big issue and no one seems to care. Yeah. I, I mean, part of the reason that this was, he was saying this is because in that time period, a lot of these pagan relig religions were sexually based. I mean, at Aphrodite, um, at, just as an example. I mean, and um, I I don't know a lot about that religion other than I know that there were virgins, and basically that didn't. They weren't really virgins. They were they were harlots, you know. And um, so there was a whole lot of focus on these these re religions that were sexually charged. So I do know that's part of it. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Why should I go to just like you were saying, er, uh, you know, when we were talking earlier? When we go to church, we should go to worship, not not to be looking around, you know, be distracted. So, or be the distraction. Or to be the know? distraction. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, it's exactly right. I mean, that, for women, it's different because they're looking at 
oh my gosh, that girl looks like she gets her nails done every week. Gosh, I, I yeah. can't really get my nails done every week. And, and again, like women don't always dress to impress men. They dress no. up to impress other women. Right. Yeah. But it's like, right. if you're at church and you're focused on, and our church is especially bad because we're in a fairly, uh, you affluent. know, yeah, affluent part of uh, part of our community in a very affluent city. And I mean, there there's as much r- money running through our church as just about any congregation on the planet. And with a lot of people, you know it. And we've got our people that, you know, are worth hundreds of millions of dollars and they walk around in old, uh, you know, New Balance shoes and stuff like that. And you would never know it. They're riding around in a 10 year old car. And so there's a lot of that flash there, but it it is the distraction. And it's a distraction for me from a sexual temptation point of view. But Ryan, I think you were going to get into this as well. It's a distraction for the women because they're constantly playing the comparison game. Go ahead. No, please jump in. Go for it. Oh, go. Okay, so yeah. I, I would say Can y'all the same stop thing. being nice to each other? Somebody say well, something. All right, I got it. Kyle, I feel like I'm I absolutely with last you. Week. <laughs> uh, Kyle, I'm absolutely with you. I think it is um it is from the female perspective, it is not just a distraction to other men that they want the attention because the needs the needs of most women, and um, back in Galatians, we talked a lot about wiring, right? Like the way that we are wired or our children are wired or our wives are wired in a specific way too. And uh, this goes back to John Eldridge's teaching is that for, the, for a woman, for a girl, she needs to see, she needs uh, to be seen and she needs to be known or told that she looks beautiful. That's mm-hmm. what she, like that speaks to her heart based on the wiring that God created in them. Uh, you think about every little girl, anybody that has a daughter, and she puts on a Disney princess dress and she runs downstairs and she twirls around in a circle because she wants what? She wants everybody to see her. Yep, right. She wants everybody to say she's beautiful. And she especially wants a dad to tell her That's she's exactly beautiful. right. That's exactly right. And so one, the women, as they walk into the churches, as they're wearing revealing stuff, they want to be seen and they want to be told that they're beautiful or at least feel like they're beautiful, even if that means from the eyes of men that are not their, not their husband. Well, that's one thing that makes you want to look at yourself as a husband. If your wife is seeking approval and wanting, you know, the world to look, to see her as beautiful and feels like she has to go to church dress that way. What are you, how are you treating her at home? That's exactly where I was going. Okay. So no, 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 I didn't no, need to steal your thunder. No, that's no, perfect. That's, yeah, that's no, good. I'm glad yeah. you picked up on that because that's so, exactly where I was going. Yeah. And so, I mean, I mean, that's the thing is, is it comes back to worship and that's what he's coming to. He's like, take, it's not about you. The Bible's not about you. I said it, you know, weeks ago. Um, and the, and church is not about you, you know, church is about God and it's about his word. And so I think that's what he's just getting into. He's just saying, you know, there, the women were braiding their hair. They're putting diamonds in it. They were coloring it. They were doing all these flamboyant things. And there was also probably some homely poor women there that couldn't make themselves beautiful that, you know, that brought jealousy. So, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, I've been, you know, I guess I'm calling myself out. I mean, you know, I was in our, our uh, church group and, Somebody was teaching. They had some really nice boots on, Kyle. And I was like, those are some nice cowboy boots. They were You nice. know what I'm saying? I was like. They're still nice. I, I caught myself, you know, like, you know, looking at Kyle's cowboy boots. <laughs> well, like, it's, it's funny you say that as a joke, but like. No, but it's true. I was like, those are some nice boots. Well, and even like, you know, I know some of us have a sales background. A lot of guys in this oh, audience yeah. have a sales background. Um, you, when I used to do some different sales, like I was in a, a sales thing where there was a lot of different uh, parts to the sales cycle. So there's kind of an introduction. There's a, hey, let's really get to know each other. And now let's close. And like, I, I know quite a bit about nonverbal communication, but also colors. And since I look like this and I'm so like intense and so argh, angry ginger in those early meetings, I would always wear a muted blue or green shirt because it was the most inviting, less invasive, uh, less intense color. And I would always sit back in my chair and I would never lean across the table. I would make everybody as comfortable as possible. But then like my, my wardrobe would get progressively darker 
as the meetings went on, when it was time to come to a decision, I'm probably wearing dark blue or black and I'm leaning across the table and it's like, look, there's no other information that you need. And that's not manipulation because when you're, when you're selling widgets that nobody needs, it can be manipulation. But whenever you're selling a product that, that people really, really need, that will help them check all the boxes they need for their life. Like that's kind of what you need to do. And so it's your job to make people as comfortable as possible. It's your job. If you're running a bed and breakfast to make sure that it's not a billion degrees in there, mm-hmm. but that it's at a comfortable temperature. So people don't wake up sweaty or yep. wake up freezing or, or something like that. But I, I think that there's not enough emphasis put on correction. Mm-hmm. So whenever, you know, we'll use our church as the microcosm example, that if there is that gal that, that comes in and she's wearing something like that, that is so obviously inappropriate, where are the women in her life that are going to pull her aside and say, um, I, I know what you wore is really pretty and I know you really like it, but did you see, I kind of scanned the room while you were up in front of the, the Sunday school talking and the guys weren't seemingly paying attention to what you were saying. And I do have a really good example of this from a church that I used to attend. There was a gal, this is one of those churches that has 74 people on stage and it's not a choir. They're all kind of different than singing and whatever. And there was a very attractive young woman who was wearing a very, very short skirt. And this was at a church where there's a stage. And so if you're sitting front row, use your imagination. And so, um, and one of the pastor's wives, one of the the main lead pastor's wives took this gal aside immediately in between services and said, honey, uh, I think you, you look great. Obviously you're in great shape and all those things. The men noticed too. How about we go change? And that was a, a, a woman with some wisdom and that that's a, that's an awkward thing because like, but at the same time, like, what about for a man? Like, what if, what if a guy was constantly pointing to how fancy his watch was or, Hey, yeah. Hey, these aren't just really cool boots. These are actually like a crocodile that I killed. And then I had a guy put it together and they cost me about 10 grand, but it's not a big deal. Cause I do really well like that. Imagine if that were the type of thing, there should be some men in that guy's life to be like, Hey brother, those are some really nice boots. Let's, let's not talk about it anymore. Yeah. You can yeah. wear them without pointing yourself to it. Cause you're distracting people. That's not the point of why we're here. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent which is the need and the call and the importance of community, most mm-hmm. importantly, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you talk a, a lot about this on your podcast, about men having uh, a foxhole, uh, men having other men around them that they, can, that they can lean on and that those men can speak into their lives and not having the pole of culture, which is to autonomy. I think the same also goes for our wives or the women in our lives. Uh, the young women as they're growing up inside the church to have that community and to have that relationship and relationship equity. And I would say to, to people listening, if you don't have a community, go get one. And if your wife or your spouse doesn't have a community, encourage them and lead them to go get one because they need that. And for the women that are coming in that need the eyes, um, that need the looks, Ryan, to your point, like there's a need, there's a void there that needs to be discussed. Well, you need women to, to teach subtlety. So one thing I want to tee you up with, so I've, I've watched you and your, your wife for a while because we used to be in the same ABF and a lot of those different things. And your wife is a very classically beautiful woman, but everything about her is uh, subdued or muted. And like in her personality, she's not one to stand up and like go crazy and freak out and all that. But you, she's elegant. Like I, I think in the things that she wears and like I talk to my wife in, in the same way, like you know, there are things that she could show off to the population of the planet, but she dresses elegantly and she dresses in a way that would be honoring to God. And she is never the distraction mm-hmm. in a room. And I think that's a very virtuous thing, right? Oh, absolutely. 
and I've told her for years that just everything she wears, I was like, you just look, you look wonderful, you know? And, uh, she, she is, it's really, a, it's her, all about her character. I've not had to really prod her at all because I mean, dozens of times over the years, she'll come out, she'll be wearing something say, Hey, is this look okay? She'll ask for my permission, um, to wear something or, you know, covered up more or whatever. And I just really, really appreciate that about her. And I, mm-hmm. I, I can only imagine that that came from a mother and a father that, that raised her right. You know, I was just, I, was, I don't know, if, I've seen it across my Facebook feed, but apparently in the last week, there's been a lot of proms or, some, or not proms, but like Christmas dances and things like that. Wow. Have you seen some of these dresses? Oh my goodness. On, on girls. On girls. Not women. These are girls. Yeah. On girls. I mean, maybe eight, eight to 12 inches of coverage. I mean, it's unreal. And then they got a little slit coming up the side to give a little bit more. It's, uh, we're doing something wrong if we're not. Do you see me? Am I beautiful? Those are the questions yeah. that they're asking, right? I mean, and there's someone out there that'll answer and that. Somebody, and it's a hairy legged boy yep. that will do it. And it's the wrong person. Uh, Kyle, to your point of all of this, it's something you touched on made me think back to, could this, right? Could uh, verse nine and 10, where it is for these, which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Could that relate to what we were talking so much about? Number two, uh, living a peaceable life in all godly and uh, godliness and reverence. Like could living modestly, dressing modestly, not talking about your alligator boots and showing them off. Could that be a peaceful life living in godliness and reverence? Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think that would be the case. And, and again, guys, we're, we're not railing against, like, if you've got a Rolex or a nice car and those things like that, that's not the point. The point is if that is one of the main things that people talk about when they right. talk about you, they're not talking about your character, they're not talking about your godliness, they're not talking about anything like that. Like, that's when it becomes a, a major issue and a distraction for people. And again, that's why I think, like, everyone thinks the modesty conversation happens with women and girls, but it happens with men as well. Because yep. I know a lot of men that are in really, really good shape and they dress accordingly and they dress so people can can see the things about them that would be attractive to the opposite sex. And yes, there are fundamental differences in how women are attracted to things and how men are attracted to things. Men are obviously way more visual, but at the same time, like there, there needs to be modesty in all things. Like there were men that I knew that wore, that wore suits all the time and they wore very well-fitting suits. And you didn't know these men were in incredible shape until you saw them in a t-shirt at the gym and they were almost sheepish about it. It wasn't like they weren't looking for every opportunity to take, to take their shirts off or anything like that. And I know that there are even church groups that get together for like pool parties like adult pool parties and things like that. And I'm like, is that the best use of everyone's time? Like I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm anti-pool anyway, cause that's where the sun lives. And you know, when the sun goes anywhere near this ginger skin, it becomes a problem, but it's like, it's impossible to not evaluate a person's body at a pool party. Right. Cause the men are there with shirts off and the women are there with two piece or even one piece suits, like swimsuits that, that are very, very revealing. And it's like, look, if we're trying to model godliness and all that, that doesn't mean that we don't ever go to the pool. But my goodness, like the, the level of immodesty, I feel like it's something you're not even supposed to say. So when you see the prom pictures or the, the fall formals or whatever, the, the homecoming dances or whatever those things are, these little girls are, they're convincing their dads, no, this dress is okay. And that is a perfect moment, dad, to be like, I'm sorry, you don't get a vote. The dress is not okay. 
And we're going to do what we need to do to make sure that that's not the advertisement that we're putting out. But again, it does come back to the validation. Where is that little girl getting validation from? Because she will get it from somebody. You know, we've talked about before, like with gangs and stuff like that. If a little boy doesn't have a father, he will find a bunch of fathers in the form of a gang. And he's going to do anything for that group of people because that's their family at that point. So um, I think we've kind of belabored the point there. And I think we've really nailed it. And again, guys, if you thought that was offensive, we still haven't gotten to the most Let's offensive part of First Timothy 2. <laughs> it because, gets worse. Yeah, that comes in verse uh, 11 and 12. Here are the most patriarchal, patronizing, horrifically terrible scriptures in all the Bible. So you guys ready for it? Let's buckle, buckle up and go. Verse 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So I know I was kind of teasing and, and being a little bit funny. And, and I, I understand that our audience is about 10% uh, female. And most of the women that are listening right now, they're, they're not at all offended at seeing a room full of men discuss this and talk about it. <laughs> but there's not a whole lot of yeah, everybody, every dumb person's favorite smart word nuance here. There's not a whole lot of different levels. There's not a whole lot of different ways to where you can look at this verse and find a context that fits into a second, third, or fourth wave feminist mindset. It's it's pretty straightforward. Women should not teach to men. That's clear, period, that men have authority in the teaching role. But also we can see extrapolated out from this that women aren't to not teach ever. They're to not teach men. So they are to teach children. They are to teach each other. They are to be a part of the discipleship process, but they do not have the explicit role of teaching. And let's talk about that before we move on to verses 13 and 14, because we get the reason why in verses 13 and 14, because Paul doesn't leave us to our own imagination. He gives us the two main arguments as to why that's the case. But guys, let's talk about that because we live in a modern era where, you know, you got your Joris Myers and you got all your other folks. And and these are women that are leading churches. And that's not just an Episcopalian problem. And that's not just a woke church problem. That's a lot of people that if you just poll general Christians in America right now and ask them, even in the Catholic church that have, you know, 2000 years of tradition around not having female fathers, right? Not in a trans sense, but in, you know, the, the fatherhood of the priesthood sense. But we're in this modern moment where most people are like, that's eh, not that big a deal. If, if you're teaching pastor as a woman, it eh, doesn't matter. Again, these people don't read the Bible, but again, we just, we think we know better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was the rule 2000 years ago, but haven't we evolved past that? Aren't we better than that? So let's, let's jump in there. I think we should dive into to verse 11. You know, woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. You know, um, when Paul was learning you know, the Hebrew Bible, um, he had to learn it through submission. He had to listen to a teacher. He had to be quiet and he had to submit and listen. Um, I think this is basically showing, Hey, we're going to teach men this way. We should teach women this way as well. So if a woman's going to be under teaching, she needs to be submissive and quiet and listen to the teacher. Um, I don't think it means a woman should never talk in church, you know, or a woman should never share her testimony or a woman should never, you know, pray. You know what I'm saying? But when teaching is happening, she should be quiet. When teaching is happening, she should be quiet and submissive, just as a man should be quiet and submissive as he's listening. Just my thought. So when you say a woman shouldn't, so are you saying that there are circumstances where women should teach to the entire congregation? No, what I'm saying, what he means here is submissiveness and instruction. So if we want to go to 12, um, a woman should never exercise authority of, over a man, so she'll never hold a senior pastor position. I mean, a woman's pastor is children's pastor, you know, by all means, you know, because women can teach to women and children, but she should never hold authority in the church. I mean, if we go back into 
the rest of Timothy and we go into Titus, it's going to, it's going to basically build out the elder board and what an elder board should look like and what elders should look like. And those are the leaders within the church. And so women should not hold a leadership position with the church. I think I used to be pretty staunch on this, um, where I didn't think women should be deacons. And my, my heart was changed on that. Um, because I believe that women should be servants of the church and should be deaconesses. So, um, but yeah, they, I don't believe that they should exercise authority of, over a man. Um, I would have to like really ponder on the, but to remain quiet part. So, so I'm gonna, a, I might let that marinate for me for a little bit. <laughs> so quick follow up on that. So yeah. you don't think they should have authority of them over a man, but in and of itself, the office of deacon does have authority over men. Does it? It's just, it's servanthood. So an office of a deacon doesn't have any authority over people. The office of a deacon is to serve the church. So that's either to put the chairs out, go and talk to somebody who's sick or go help do food stuff. Um, that's, that's just like, if you look at Phoebe in the church, some people want to call her an elder and say that she was a leader. She wasn't, she was a deacon. She was a deaconess. She was a servant of the church. Uh, if we look at Lydia, is it Lydia? Yes. Um, Lydia opened her home as a servant to the church and started the church within her home, but she wasn't the teacher. So yes, I, I do believe that women should serve, but doesn't mean if they serve as a deacon, mean they have authority over man. So I guess that, that begs the, what is the line between deacon and elder? I get, guys, we're going to get there. So I'm obviously a, teasing a de- that up An earlier. elder actually has authority on how the church should be run and how the church should move and how, what the church does. A deacon is just a servant of the church. It's just a person who's like, all right, I'm going to go pick up the mailbags. You know yeah, what I'm so saying? So they don't have a, they don't have voting rights. They don't have, and... well, that depends. You know, some churches you have voting rights when you're voting in a new pastor or you're voting in, you know, and but that's, men congregational. And yeah, that's congregational. That's congregational. That's congregational. And men and rights. women have voting rights. But like, let's say, let's say we're looking for a new pastor of our church. Well, that's a, that's a part of the elder board right. and the elder board is going to look for that pastor and that's going to be a full of men, you know? the deacons don't come in and they don't have any say on, on who the new pastor is until it goes to a congregation vote. So, yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Yep. So I think we have to have a distinction of what is an elder and what is a deacon because um, both sides can use it in the wrong way, you know, because they're going to say, Hey, a deacon has, has, uh, has power. And really they don't, you know, yeah, and servants. I, I, you know, and I just, not, not that there's any confusion, but, but it's not that women aren't smart. No. It's not that they can't understand the Bible. It's not that they don't have wisdom to speak over other people. It's, this is just strictly the way God set it up. Well, you yeah. Know? And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. No, it's okay. You, Go ahead. Yeah. And that's where it is, is, you know, that's where Paul gets into, you know, God, God is the head and Christ is the head and the church is his bride, you know, and that's us men. We are, we are the head of the family, you know, and this is our bride. We're going to care for our bride just as much as the church, uh, God, Christ is going to care for his church. Yeah. You know? And so I want to, I want to make sure that my bride knows that she's loved. She's beloved. You know, we're, our church is beloved to Christ. Just like my wife is beloved to me. She's very much smart. She's probably smarter than, me. you know what I'm saying? But when it comes to authority and leadership, she puts that into my hands. Yeah. And I was just thinking like James three, I believe if I remember it says not many of you should, you know, claim to be teachers right. uh, because you'll, you'll be, be judged, yeah. judged more strictly. Yeah. So it's not like men should be like, oh my gosh, let me, let me be str- judged more strictly. No, I mean, I mean, we have been put into that role, yeah. you know, and that is just, that's our lot, you know. So we need to be 2 Timothy 2, 15, 16, which is dividing the, the word of God rightly. 
Right. Right. And, and I think to your point, for, uh, for husbands and fathers, hey, we are the spiritual leaders of our home. So for that, we are responsible and we have to account for our wives and children in our home. And so whether we like it or not, we're already called to a higher standard and we already will be judged more strictly than those unmarried or don't have wives or children. Yep. I think I'm trying to find it in Peter, but Peter talks about how um, uh, the woman is, I want to, I want to make sure I get this right. Before I say well, well, while you're finding it, I, th- yeah. I think we'll be able to kind of get back to it. But even as we talk and one, one quick thing, I think there would be people that would significantly push back on whether or not deacons have actual like authority or, or control, but we, we can certainly, well, probably when we get into chapter five, we, we can talk even more about that. But when you get into 13 and 14, uh, this is where Paul gives you his reasons for this, because it's one thing to just say it because Peter or because Paul was, you know, uh, a patriarchal, toxically masculine man, but he gives you the two reasons for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay. So there's order. And then in 14, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so this actually took me back to also the conversation I had with Elisa the last time she was on the show, Elisa Childers. And she, she actually talked about it and she kind of said it sheepishly, but she talked about how in not in as many words, but that women are more susceptible to, to being taken advantage of, or they're a little bit more gullible in certain circumstances, not as discerning. And just hearing a woman in 20, like she said it in 2022 to hear a woman say that it's like, wow, like how backwards can you possibly be? Like you just, man, you must live in the handmaid's tale. Like it, it was that, that type of a circumstance, but no, it's like, we see that right here in verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, which does not mean that Adam had no role in this right. because Adam right. should have been Absolutely. protecting her from yeah. the serpent. Adam was sitting there with his thumb up his butt, like just trying, <laughs> looking around like, Oh, look at that tree. Hey, look at that monkey. And it was just kind of one of those weird deals where it's like, yeah. no, like he wasn't doing his role either, but he wasn't the initial transgressor. And, and that's, that's where, where we get into that. But did you find yeah. that? Peter? So first Peter three, seven, your, you husbands oh. in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. And it's basically some translations call it a weaker vessel. Weaker vessel, yeah. Yeah. And so it's not that your wife is weak, you know, and she's not strong in certain areas. She's just, she's weaker in some areas. And I think, I think in one thing that my wife excels at better than I do is empathy, you know? And, and sometimes when we take our empathy, it can make us weak in regards to what's going on within a, within the culture to bring in a false gospel. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like, that's one thing that I think, you know, I think we have to look at. Yeah. And okay. we're just reiterating that men and women are equal in essence, different in their roles. In salvation. Exactly right. Yeah. In salvation, men and women, and when it comes to Imago Day and salvation, men and women are equal. Yeah. But when it comes to, we complement each other. So complementarianism is what we sure. would get into on that topic. Well, I mean, if you look at it, the Jewish faith just by the Mosaic law was incredibly um, saving for women of that time period yep. because there was... The, the Mosaic law gave them value of some sense and told men and, men and women how to treat women. And then yep. you look at the Christian faith, and I think we talked about it in Galatians, about, hey, there is neither male nor female, slave nor master. You know, like, hey, we are all equal as right. it comes to the faith in Christ. So we are yep. not talking to your point, Ryan. It's not talking about weaker as in importance or yep. um, value. Right. We're talking about specific roles. Right. Yep. Well, because people think the Bible is retrograde and that it's like, oh, it's this super unbelievable thing. But 
you have to think about it in the context with right. which it was written at that right. time. Women were less valuable than cattle. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, no, no, no. They, for the first time in the history of humanity, they had value. Right. Right. And so, cause, because for up into the point where, where we start getting the Bible, it was might made right. And, and yeah. who's the more mighty of the two genders? Ooh, sorry, two genders. It's the men, it's the males. And so might makes right. And so yeah, there's only so much control that a woman has over reproduction, especially in that time. If a woman uh, or if a man wanted to be able to propagate his DNA, he could do so guys. And so that, that's the thing that we, this is the first time where we get the value, but then people think that we love to categorize value in our modern parlance to be like, wait, women get lesser roles in mm-hmm. my eyes. So they're not actually equal. Mm-hmm. And that's what egalitarians will argue to where it's just like, uh, you know, uh, it would be, it would be too transgressive for people. Uh, if we were to talk about this and to talk about women and, and men as if they have different roles. So let's just make everybody the same. Let's just clear the playing field, which kind of leads into the, to the, uh, uh, transgender ideal worth of, worth of thing. So a lot of people in the egalitarian side, they don't really realize a lot of their argumentation backs in to a lot of transgenderism, but right here, like, it's like, no, no, no. Like it is possible to have equal value, but to have different roles. Absolutely. Think about it. Like any team you've ever been on, even in scripture, how it describes the church. There are people that have really loud, really sexy skill sets. They're exhorters or they're speakers or, or they're, they're really good, uh, you know, in that way, but they're just as valuable to the overall workings of the church as the people that are making the coffee, right. the people that are putting out the chairs, all those different things. They just don't have as sexy of a way of displaying it, I guess. But I think we should look at look at modern culture in regards to like, let's say me and my wife get a divorce. That will never happen, but let's just say that happens. Are they going to be like, well, they're equal when it comes to the kids, so I have to weigh who the kids should go to no, equally. Never no, would. they're going to send them with their mother. Why? Because she compliments better on what she does nurturing wise than I as a man will do. Why? Because we have different roles. And in our culture... Our modern culture realizes, realizes that, not biblically, but through their own law, but we want to act like everything's equal. Well, Ryan, we even see that in verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, don't take that to mean that somehow women giving birth saves them in terms of their overall salvation, you know, salvation in terms of eternity and things like that. But essentially that what that's saying, if I, if I can put it in brief is that women will be protected from false teaching if they focus on their families, because it's really hard to get romanced by somebody's false teaching. If you're worried about rearing your children, if you're worried about caring for them and doing the things that you were built to do, you know, that's something, you know, my wife and I've talked about because both of our sons are below the age of three. They're in that, that's still in that mode where they need a whole lot more a mom than they need dad. To do. Now there is a time period. And some of you guys have already gotten there with your sons where it's like, it's not that mom is not important anymore, but this is a different ball game. And John Tyson talks about this in the intentional father to where they had the severing dinner when the, when the kid was 13 or 14. And now it's like, okay, your mom is 100% your secondary parent. I am your primary parent. And she is, she still has authority over you and she still has leadership over you and she still loves you, but she is not your primary parent. What you need now is a man. You don't need a woman as much as, as you need me as your father. And so I think that's really important here as well. And again, this seems very transgressive and very backwards. And no, I don't think this is an excuse that every woman should work out of the home and should homeschool their kids and all that. If you take it that way and want to live that way, I'm not saying you're an error, right? If that's the way that you decide to live, that's probably going to be okay for you overall. Yeah. Christian but, freedom. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that's, that really gets into it further. Yeah. And I, and I read this, I thought it was really interesting. I mean, that's a kind of a downer. Like when it says, you know, she was deceived, you know, and, and, and sin came through her basically. 
that's a that's a pretty big downer. But if we think about it too, God redeems that woman in in womankind um, through the Savior because yeah. the Savior came through a woman, right? You know, mm-hmm. and not through a man. Uh, yeah. So I think that's kind of a beautiful way to just kind of think about her redemption. Too. That is beautiful. Well, guys. I think we covered, I think if we're not going to get canceled for this particular episode, I, I'm not, we just have to try harder the next time we come back to the forging table. But guys, we're going to have to leave it there, but come back next Sunday where we will dig into first Timothy three. Make sure you guys read that over the next week so that you are prepared. Uh, before we let you go, we're going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. The only link I've got for you today is a link to our donation page on our website. Guys, that is how we are going to be able to continue to pump out information and pump out content like this is because we need guys just like you supporting what we're trying to do. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song, Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album, Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.